What is up, guys? We are back with another week two preview, man. We're kicking off this Friday, September 10th, with Jackson State versus Tennessee State. It, it, it's going to be a good one in Memphis this weekend, man. I wish I could be there. I got some family in Memphis, but sadly, I'll be watching on ESPN3 at 7 p.m. Central Time. I could not find a game line for this one for some reason. Like, I checked. DraftKings, FanDuel, Action Network, like everywhere. I could not find a line for this game, but I am assuming Jackson State is at least a slight favorite. I would imagine somewhere in seven to ten point range is about where I would put the line. And for me, we have an extremely interesting matchup this weekend, a SWAC versus OVC matchup. And for me, this is going to be such a great matchup because even though Jackson State won last week, I, we everyone still has a few questions about what this team is really going to look like. What is Shador going to look like in week two? That defense, that offensive line, there's still some questions to answer even though they got a very impressive week one win. And on the flip side, Tennessee State is going to be fighting so hard to avoid an 0-1 start to kick off the 2021 season. Now, you know, for storylines, huge week one swag win, all, you know, technically on the road, even though it was a neutral site game in Florida. On the road, Jesse gets to win over FAMU 7-6, to six, but there's some questions about the offensive potential. Is it going to be as electric as some people think it is? But the defensive side of the ball looks like the real deal after dominating this weekend. And this weekend, I think they're really going for the title of, man, we could be the most dominant defense in the swag and we're going to possibly be one of the better defenses in the fcs that's that's jackson state's mindset going into this weekend now tennessee state coming off a very tough loss to grambling this past weekend up in the i believe it was like the hall of fame game i forget exactly what they call it but they can get some revenge on the swag this week if they pull the upset over Deion sanders and the jackson state tigers now there's major questions on both sides of the ball. Eddie George has to have his team play up to their potential. Can Hugh Jackson dial something up to catch this Jackson State defense off guard, create some explosive plays, and make this a competitive game? We're going to find out, but we got to start with the keys you know, for Jackson State here. It's simple. It's the exact same thing I said last week with a few minor twists because we got some answers on who the, who the playmakers are, but – Tennessee State had zero passing threat last week. I believe Grambling completed four passes last week, so they were not tested in the back end of their defense. Let Shador distribute to his weapons. Let them go make plays against an unproven secondary. They have the advantage. Take advantage of your strength, man. Trevante Rucker, outstanding last week. Three catches, 83 yards. He was a problem for FAMU, you know, and just as a matchup standpoint. No one can deal with his length, his catch radius, his ball skills. I don't see anybody in this Tennessee State secondary having a favorable matchup if Trevante Rucker lines up on top of you. And for me, the one thing I want to see this weekend is I want to see Rucker become more of a red zone threat. Even when Jackson State went down there and scored their one touchdown last week, I really wanted to see them, you know, get it to some of those big wide receivers. You've got Malachi Wadman, you've got Trevante Rucker, you've got some big targets in the red zone. Utilize them. Let's see what you let's see how creative you are. Because listen, the saying is a playmaker 
the month, you know, as a play caller, the money is made in the red zone. You got to be able to put the ball because it doesn't matter what you do in between the twenty. It, you know, in between the twenties, you can move the ball back and forth, but if you can't put up points on the board in the red zone, it doesn't matter. That's where I want to see Jackson State be creative. Let's see what they can do, but can they put some points on the board? Because we know their kicking cannot be trusted. Give some of these big guys a chance. I think Rucker is your number one option now. Josh Lanier was supposedly banged up late in the game last week, but everything I've read and heard is that he should be good to go this weekend. I'm, I'm barring a last-second change. He is a matchup nightmare for almost anyone Jackson State plays in terms of you know being versatile where they can line him up. Last week, I loved how Jackson State utilized his speed on underneath routes. Now, the why this is important is on underneath routes, a lot of the times, especially if the defense plays zone underneath, they'll trade off. So once he comes across the formation, one linebacker or safety or corner will trade him off to the next one on the other side of the defense, and then they'll switch jobs almost. He's too fast to do that. FAMU tried to do that multiple times, and he outran the other defender because he had a running start, and they didn't. He's too fast for you to come off flat-footed and try to keep up with him when he's already you know, in second or third gear. And for me, even when you play man on him, there's, especially in the slot, which is where he's usually going to play, there's not that many slot corners and or, God forbid, you have a linebacker fall, fall on him. They're not going to be able to keep up, and he is going to make you pay. He was the leading pass catcher last week with six receptions. If he's healthy this week, I would expect him to lead the team in receptions again. Listen, I get it. Shador played fine last week. I thought, you know, nothing spectacular, but he did his job and didn't turn well, didn't turn the ball over through the air. He did have some fumbles. Hopefully it's not raining this weekend in Memphis. I didn't check the weather. If it's raining in Memphis, it could be another problem, but I don't believe it's projected rain in Memphis this weekend. He doesn't have to do anything special. Don't force anything. Make the right decisions and play within your offense and game plan. You don't have to go out there and be Patrick Mahomes. All you got to do is be Shador Sanders in Jackson State's offense this weekend. That's it. You don't have to go out there and force plays or try to do something over the top. Get the ball to Josh Lanier. Get get the ball to Corbin. Get get the ball to Rucker. Get you know you have so many options to on the outside, and you even got Peyton Pickett coming out of the backfield. So just get it to your playmakers. And don't don't worry about anything else. You don't have to be anything more than that. Tennessee State's D-line really didn't show me anything last weekend. And so for me, if they're not they don't have that true pass rusher, they don't have a guy who can go create his own pass rush. So for me, they need to rely on being creative. And I love what Jackson State did early last week. And it's what I said, you know, when we had the round table on All Scripts channel. I said that FAMU needed to be creative to get pressure, confuse the O-line, get favorable matchups, make them miss a block, make them miss a defender, and you get an open shot at the quarterback. Jackson State did that. They confused the FAMU offensive line. They were shifting the wrong way. The running back was on the wrong side of the formation, and they were getting to McKay in like point like a millisecond. And he was and Niles Gaddy went untouched like six times in the first half. That 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 has to be the Jackson. I mean Tennessee State's D line's game plan. If they are like FAMU and lack any sort of creativity, Tennessee Tennessee State 
is going to get picked apart because Shador is going to have all the time in the world in the pocket. They're going to be able to run the ball, and Tennessee State is going to have zero shot in this game. Now, on the offensive side of the ball for Tennessee State, so the key for Tennessee State for me is establish the run because that was the one weak spot I saw on this Jackson State defense last week is running inside the tackles and really, you know, into the into those A gaps, maybe the B gaps sometimes. That's that's the weak spot. And then also we saw the a the abysmal quarterback play for Tennessee State last week. It, it was it was bad and we'll get to that. But last weekend the Rattlers were able to establish the run game when they committed to it. Now when they got into second and third and longs, they put themselves in bad positions. They couldn't, they couldn't sustain drives. They had a lot of success running inside. Bonnet and Jennings both averaged over five yards per carry, and Tennessee State has a promising running back in Devin Starling, Starling from Memphis, transferred from Memphis, who will be playing in the Liberty Bowl again. The reason this is, and I went back and watched, and even I talked to Allscript about it in CFL in like a group message we had, the Jackson State D-line, especially the interior guys, are hyper-aggressive. They over-pursue in their gaps, and so Tennessee State needs to do like Bonnet did at times, utilize this, use the cutback lanes, and use their aggression to, the, to their advantage. Utilize delay, delayed handoff. Utilize counters. Long-developing plays that get, that get this D-line up the field – cut behind them, and you'll have better gaps. And then all your offense lineman has to do is pick up a linebacker here or there, and you have big plays consistently. That is the key for them. Now, the reason this is is because Jackson State's D-line is filled with pass rushers. They are so aggressive. They want to make a play, but if they don't if they don't maintain gap protection, there there are plays to be made on the inside of this on the inside of this defense. And it was shown multiple times in the FAMU game. It was just for some reason FAMU thought McKay had to throw the ball 20-something times instead of giving Bonnet the ball up the middle multiple times. That was what went wrong. And for me, the offensive line for Tennessee State has to come to play. They must win the line of scrimmage because if Jackson State forces this team to be one-dimensional one way or the other, it's going to be a blowout. Tennessee State won't stand a chance. They only averaged about three and a half, I think it was 3.7 yards per carry last week, only had 112 rushing yards. But to win this game, they have to rush for no less than 150, and I think just as a unit have to get to 200 total yards rushing. That's the key to victory for Tennessee State. And, you know, Davian Bryant is a nice change of pace back to go along with what they have in Starling. But for me, they got to be a great one-two punch. That's exactly what FAMU did with Jennings and Bonnet. That's what Tennessee State needs to do this weekend. And now for the, you know, for the matchup to watch, for me, it's going to be the Tennessee State passing game. Just the entire passing game, quarterback and wide receivers against this Jackson State secondary. Because the passing game last weekend was abysmal for Tennessee State, and the secondary for Jackson State is the strength of this team, in my opinion. Now, when you look at last week, Tennessee State had three quarterbacks attempt passes, and the results varied, I would say, pretty greatly. And I would imagine after last week, I haven't heard any formal announcement, I would imagine Jeremy Hickbottom would get the start this weekend based off of performances last week. Hickbottom went 8 for 10 for 65 yards. Bryant went 4 for 12 for 22 yards. Can't have that. That's McKay-like. And then Pope went 1 for 2 for 31 yards. I didn't see a large enough sample size for him to get in there. 
I would assume Hick bottom one due to his performance last week, his experience in big games, his ceiling, and just his arm talent as a whole is a little higher than some of these other guys who've got time. I think he gives Tennessee State the best chance to win at quarterback because Bryant looks like a recipe for another McKay game, and that's a losing recipe for Tennessee State. Now, Jackson State, their secondary was not really tested due to some poor quarterback play last week, especially with McKay. They responded well when they put a more efficient passer in the game late in, in the junior kid. But they limited FAMU to only 125 passing yards, and they have some talented wide receivers, so you have to give them a little bit of credit. And they didn't allow a pass over 20 yards. Cameron's, Cam, I believe it's Cameron uh, Salmon, Shiloh Sanders, Dejon Warren, and C.J. Holmes are going to probably be a collection of the best secondaries that Tennessee State sees all season. I love the Cameron kid. He played lights out. Shiloh was a bruiser, and Dijon and C.J. Holmes, you already know about them. But for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them a challenge. I want to see these guys take the next step as a unit and force some turnovers. All these guys can be playmakers, and I, and I expect big things against a team that you know really lacks a complete wide receiving core outside of one or two guys, and also some inefficiencies at quarterback along with just that pass, that offense isn't in rhythm right now. I want to see these talented guys force some turnovers this week, and that's the challenge for Jackson State that I see is to get some interceptions, maybe shallow, get a fumble. I want to see this defense force some turnovers against a team who should be able to throw the ball a bit more efficiently than FAMU did last week. So that's the matchup to watch for me. But, man, you know, looking at this game, I just personally don't I, – I, you know, as creative as Hugh Jackson is, I think he'll find a way to get some points. But for me, I think that Tennessee State right now lacks the overall talent to keep up. I see Jackson State pulling away in this one. You know, I see maybe, you know, a close game in the first quarter, but I think down the stretch Jackson State wears this Tennessee State State team down. I think Jackson State gets the big win this weekend, 30-13 to 13 in Memphis. That is my pick. The Jackson State Tigers, 30, Tennessee State, 13. Not an interesting non-conference matchup between two teams that I think the potential is there for them both to do something big in their conference. And, you know, it's going to go down in primetime in Fayetteville, 6 p.m. Central Time on ESPN. We got the number 15 Texas Longhorns traveling to Razorback Stadium to take on the Arkansas Razorbacks. And right now, according to the spread, as I'm recording, a seven-point favorite are the Longhorns right now. So a lot of people had, you know, increased expectations for both of their teams, and this could be a large stepping stone win for both of these programs to move throughout their 2021 season. Now, for storylines coming into the game, they're a little different for both programs. You look at Texas, they made a big statement last weekend with a huge win over Louisiana Lafayette, in which a lot of people were possibly expecting an upset, especially after how well you know Louisiana Lafayette played last year. They upset Iowa State to kick off the season last year. First-year head coach, first-year starting quarterback in Hudson Card. The Longhorns pulled it off, got a big win, and it impressed myself. I was so impressed with what Texas did last weekend, and a lot of the media and fans surrounding this program were very impressed because 
Like I said, the Raging Cajuns were a popular upset pick. So Texas made a statement last weekend with a big win. If they can get this win on the road in week two, that is two huge wins you can, you know, you know, you can clip onto Texas's resume right now. And Arkansas came into the season with some underdog expectations in the SEC. Now, no one was expecting them to win, but they were thinking, man, maybe they could be third, fourth in the SEC West and really exceed the recent expectations, especially as they were under Chad Morris at one of their all-time lows. Sam, but they had a... Rice, they overcame a 10-point second-half deficit to pull out a 38-17 to win, and experts are kind of wondering what to think about the what to think about the Razorbacks after a very very tough Week One game against Rice. KJ Jefferson did not look great in the first half. The defense was kind of sloppy, but in the second half, they scored on I believe five of their next six drives and also forced three huge interceptions for Rice to pull that game out. So that's where we're sitting with storylines for these two teams. And so for me, let's get into the keys for Texas to win this game. And, you know, I previewed, you know, if you're a Texas fan returning, man, glad y'all are back. But we previewed the Louisiana Lafayette-Texas game last week. And I'm going to be honest, don't change anything. The key is exactly the same until someone proves me otherwise. And it's going to be feed Bajan Robinson, feed him again, feed him again. And right when you think he's had enough, feed him one more time because he should be the focal point of this Longhorns team for as long as nobody in the country can stop him. I mean, he kicked off the 2021 season right where he left off the 2020 season, and that's in a dominant fashion. He carried this Texas team to a huge week one win, and without him, they probably that game's either much, much closer or Texas gets upset. He had 103 rushing yards, 73 receiving yards, and two big touchdowns. He is going to be the focal point of this offense because nobody in the country can seem to stop him ever. And I don't even think anyone can argue Robinson isn't a top three running back in the country. And for me, I think he claimed the throne as the best running back in the Big 12 right now. I know Deuce Vaughn at K-State's doing some great things. Brees Hall it you know, was the leading rusher in FBS last year, and Kennedy Brooks is doing some big things. But I don't think any of them right now have an argument over Bajan Robinson. And I know the O-line has some struggles with sacks. They allow three against the Raging Cages, but they did an outstanding job in the run-blocking aspect of the game. That must continue this weekend because if Arkansas puts this game strictly on Hudson Card, things are going to get interesting and very, very tight for Texas because that secondary for Arkansas showed in the second half last week. They have some playmakers, and they, they're they a stout team, and they showed it at times last year, you know, absolutely picking apart Dewan Mathis and Stetson Bennett at times in, the, in week one against Georgia last year. So this team is not a pushover on the defensive side of the ball. You have to be able to establish the run, get the ball to Bajon Robinson, let him go make plays. And now, for, for me, I love what this offense line did. I mean, it's anchored by some experienced guys. You got Denzel Okafor, uh, I believe it's Junior and, and Galu, and also Derek Kerstetter at the at the tackle spot. Senior, junior, and senior. All these guys have multiple starts under their belts, and they have, right now the way they're run blocking, and if they can just show up their pass, pass blocking a little bit, I think they can make an argument for one of the best O-lines in the Big 12, and that's going to go a long way for Hudson Card 
to, I guess, keep improving his game and really establishing himself as the top quarterback in this conference. Now, a secondary key to this game, just want to mention it before I move on, is to keep Hudson Card clean, especially in his first road start in a, a hostile environment against a sold-out Arkansas, you know, in this Arkansas stadium. You are going up against a very experienced and talented front seven for the Razorbacks. I know it was only three sacks last week. You can't have him – you can't have him under pressure. You can't get him hit a lot because that internal clock is going to start ticking. And if he escapes clean pockets and he's rushing passes and he's sailing them, the Texas offense is going to become very inefficient, out of rhythm. And so you want to keep Hudson Card exactly in the spot he was last week where – you counted on Bajan to get your yards on the ground. Hudson Carr was able to play within the offense. He was efficient. He was confident, and he was calm under pressure and calm in the pocket. You want to keep that this weekend. So keeping him clean is a secondary key for the Longhorns to get the win this weekend. Now, you know, he played well in week one. I understand, but I want to see how Card is going to respond in his first road start against, a, I think, a, maybe a better defense than he faced last week. I guess that's up to, for debate, but for me, I think this Razorback defense is very underrated. I, he put up a great game against Rice, but you saw what the Razorbacks did to Wiley Green at Rice in the second half. Three picks, they held him to an extremely low QBR, but 224 and two touchdowns, no turnovers for Card last week. He's got to replicate that. But Jean is the focal point, and if Card is able to play off the play action, utilize his weapons on the outside while everyone's focusing on Bajan, the Longhorns are going to be a very tough team to beat this weekend. And so that is the key for the Longhorns and for Arkansas. It's so simple. And this is probably, you know, the game plan that some fans saw coming. Others would be like, man, I don't know, but this is what I trust. If you're in a game like this where you're an underdog and you need a big win, one Protect the ball. Limit your turnovers. If you don't turn the ball over, you've got a chance to let everyone see why K.J. Jefferson has all the hype he does in Fayetteville. Let him utilize his skill set and go out there and make plays. They need to open up the playbook. They need to let K.J. Jefferson go for broke this weekend, in my opinion. He's one of the most ver- he brings one of the most versatile skill sets that I think the Razorbacks have had in a long time at the quarterback position. The Raging Cages, to me, failed to capitalize on Levi Lewis's athleticism. The Razorbacks have to give him the keys and let him go win this game. He has that type of potential. And I felt like there was times, especially in the first half against Rice, where they only gave him like a quarter of the playbook. It was like giving, giving him a Ferrari, but like take like only letting him get to like second gear. Open up the playbook. You have the talent. You have the experience. You're playing at home. And in this game, in this type of game against a very talented Texas team, it's a top 15 team in the country, go ahead and let your athletes go make plays. You recruit him there for a reason. He's QB1 for a reason. Let him go ball out. He's 6'4", almost 250 with 4'6 speed, and he can be a game wrecker if you let him get his rhythm and let him establish himself in the offense like you did in the second half where he hits a big touchdown pass. The next play takes off up the middle, gets to the end zone. He When he gets rolling, he's almost impossible to stop at the quarterback spot. They, the Razorbacks cannot afford to play this game conservatively. Go let your quarterback who threw for almost 10,000 yards, 3,000 yards rushing out of high school. Let him utilize all that potential 
and let him win this game for you. He is the key to the game. K.J. Jefferson has to be the quarterback Arkansas fans think he can be. That is the whole key, and that's what's going to win this game. And when you look on the outside, he has all the weapons. He had, there's his top five receiving target targets in the offense are all upperclassmen with a lot of experience, and they all possess the ability to go make plays in space and win one-on-one matchups. Davion Warren, Traylon Burks, Tyson Morris, Trey Knox, Blake Kern at tight end, all of these guys have the experience, and the moment's not going to be too big for them. Let them go out and make plays. KJ Jefferson has the arm. He has he he has the confidence. He has the athleticism. You have what it takes to go put make this a game against Texas. Open up the playbook, let it fly, and let KJ Jefferson and all the weapons you surrounded him with go win you this game. That's what you put this team together for. It's not time to be shy. Open up the playbook and let it fly. And yes, Traylon Smith at running back can do his thing in the run game. You cannot risk playing this too conservatively because this Texas offense with Steve Sarkeesian is too creative and has a weapon in Bajan Robinson that's too good for you to shut them down completely. You're going to have to score, and you're going to have to put pressure on this Texas team to put the ball in the air and force Hudson Carr to beat you. That is what you're going to have to do. So you're going to have to put some points on the board. You're in a friendly environment. If there's any time that K.J. Jefferson should be able to let it fly and get – be given the full keys to this offense is this week when you have nothing to lose and you've got a huge game in, in non-conference that can set your program up moving forward and give you all the confidence in the world. It'd be a huge recruiting statement. And I promise you, if you're Sam Pittman, this is one of those legacy defining wins as a coach where, you know, in a few years, people are looking back like, man, do you remember when he beat that top 15 Texas team and they did this, this, and this, that's the type of game this is. And for me, the matchup, the, the, that's why my, I'll be moved to my matchup to watch because that kind of ties into this. The matchup to watch to me, and this is why I say you have to open up the playbook, is because when you force Hudson Card to play, your secondary versus the Texas wide receiving unit is so important because I think you have the athletes to give them a run for their money. Now, if the Razorbacks can force turnovers in this matchup and make the Longhorns one-dimensional, then this game gets extremely, extremely in- interesting, and it's going to be hard to, to predict who comes out with the win. So that's why you want to open it up. You want your best against their best, and you want to put them in an uncomfortable spot because – for Texas, all you want to do is say, okay, we can just run the ball for Zion Robinson, chew the clock, we have no pressure, let's just, let's just keep churning it out. You want to be like, man, we're going to get them down in a hole early. You're going to put pressure on them to keep scoring because they know you can score. You want to make this game almost kind of a shootout game and let K.J. Jefferson go make the plays you recruited him for. And, you know, when I look at this matchup, though, Arkansas DBs versus Texas wide receivers – the Longhorns, for me, had a huge star emerge last week. Jordan Whittington played absolutely outstanding. He exploded seven catches, over 110 yards receiving, and a touchdown. But I want to see a number two, number three targets play a little bit better. They got to emerge for card and this passing offense in this matchup. You know, Joshua Moore... Three catches, but he wasn't very efficient moving the ball. I think he only had like 17 yards. And also, Xavier Worthy flashed on his one catch. I believe it was like over a 30-yard completion, but he only had one catch. 
Worthy and more have to be bigger factors in this passing game. It can't just be on Winnington and Robinson alone because Arkansas is going to key on that and take it away. You need to have options on the outside. Get all your playmakers involved and have multiple people be be your playmakers this weekend because you're going to need all of them to come out with this huge non-conference road win. And for the Razorbacks in the secondary, that they played lights out in the second half last week. And if they can bring that energy and execution from kickoff this week, it's going to be a problem for the Longhorns. And they're loaded with experience, but I love this kid, uh, Jalen Catalan, at safety. He's one of the best secondary players in the country. Two huge interceptions last week, and I expect him to be an X-factor this week. He was an SEC All-American last year. The kid is so talented. If Jalen's rolling, this Arkansas secondary is going to be clicking, and it's going to be an interesting matchup for those Texas playmakers on the outside. But Ladarius Bishop, Ladarius Bishop and, and Montaric Brown are the two corners. They're going to be tasked with shutting down Moore, Whittington, and all those guys. But for me, an X factor in the secondary is Greg Book. Greg Brooks Jr. at the nickel spot. I think he's going to be tasked with kind of paying attention when Bajan gets out the slot when he comes out the backfield. He's probably going to be tasked with stopping Bajan Robinson in the passing game. If he succeeds at that, it really takes a huge, I guess, factor out of what Sarkeesian likes to do with his running backs out the backfield. But if he can't, and Robinson's exploding, and not in, not just in terms of rushing, but also he becomes a huge receiving threat like he was last week, the Razorbacks are going to have a very tough time winning this game. So for me, that's a key. Brooks versus Bajan Robinson is probably the matchup within a matchup that I'm most interested to see. And so with all this, man, I think this is going to be such a close game. You know, I think the spread is about perfect of what it is, about a seven-point game. It, you know, in a road in a road environment, I think it's going to be tough on card. I think we're going to see them make a few more mistakes than we did last week. But for me right now, just given Bajan Robinson, I don't know if Arkansas can do enough to shut him down completely. And for me, I expect both quarterbacks to make some mistakes because we saw Jefferson is prone to some mistakes if he's not in his rhythm. So for me, I, I, I really think Texas pulls this one out in a close one. I could see this being a tie game going into the fourth, but I just think Bajan Robinson and that offense can probably make a play late to pull it out. I expect this to be a raucous environment, and I expect it to be a very close game. But right now, I have Texas 30, Arkansas 23. So I got the Longhorns, Longhorns by seven men. Longhorns 30, Razorbacks 23. That's my prediction. But, guys, so we have – in my opinion, one of the best matchups of the weekend here. It's There's a reason it was selected in prime time on ABC, 7 p.m. Central Time. And we got Michigan hosting the Washington Huskies in the big house. It's one of the biggest non-conference matchups. It was talked about all offseason. Jimmy Lake squad coming in to take on Jim Harbaugh's Wolverine squad. And uh, there's some there's some fans of some experts who think this matchup has a bit of a damper on it after the huge upset that we saw in Seattle last weekend. But for me, I'm just as excited to see this matchup. I think it's two evenly matched teams. And we're going to find out a lot of questions about both of these guys come Saturday night. Now, the storylines going into the game are simple. Michigan kicked off the 2021 season with a dominant win over Western Michigan in the big house. But the storyline coming out of that, 
Ronnie Bell, the number one wide receiver for the Wolverines, goes down with injury, will be out most likely for the rest of the season. Uh, well, you know, we just here at the Blue Bloods want to wish him a speedy, efficient, and fully healthy recovery, man. Wish him the best for that kid. He's going to be a future star at the NFL level. And so now there's major questions about who's going to step up in this place. I got the answers for that later in the show, but the Wolverines look very strong this weekend. Hey, McNamara looked amazing. This Michigan team is prompt to make a big impact this weekend, as they are, as I'm recording, a seven-point favorite, according to most uh, sports books online that I can find. Now, on the other side, the Huskies suffered arguably the biggest upset of week one. The Montana Grizzlies came in there and gave the Huskies all they wanted and came away in Seattle with a 13-7 upset win, and they scored 13 unanswered after Washington took the first drive down and put it in the end zone on their first drive, and they were held scoreless for the next you know, three and a half, three, three and like .75 quarters. I mean, the whole rest of the game. And – uh, this leaves a lot of questions on where this Jimmy Late squad is, where they're, where the, where are their heads at, what's the motivation level, are they feeling defeated, are they fired up and motivated to come in here and get a big win over Michigan. It, there's a lot of questions surrounding this Husky squad, so let's get into the keys real quick. We're going to start with the Wolverines here. And for me, if you watch their win over Western Michigan, the key is simple. The game plan was laid out perfectly last season. And even if they can't replicate the eight yards per carry they averaged last weekend against this Western Michigan defense, which is this Huskies defense is going to be a much tougher task. But even if they can't replicate that production, they have to establish the running game. And that's, that's, that is the utmost importance right there because of all the questions surrounding the wide receiving core and you want to help out your quarterback, Cade McNamara. And for me, Blake Corum and Hassan Haskins were a dynamic one-two punch last weekend. I thought they, I think they have to bring that same type of energy production into this weekend against a much stouter Huskies front seven. Now, Corum rushed for 110 and a touchdown, and he averaged over eight yards per carry, while Haskins averaged over five and a half yards per carry and also had a touchdown. If the Wolverines can have both of these guys rotate in and out, stay fresh, and wear down this front seven for the Huskies, then it could cause a lot of problems for that Husky front seven. If they get more down to the end of the game and Michigan's O-line plays as well as they did last week, which they are extremely, extremely experienced, then the Huskies are in for a long night. Michigan pounded pounded and pounded the ball again against Western Michigan. I'm expecting the same type of game plan when the Huskies come into the big house Saturday night. Now, you know, I also want to say the Hus the Wolverines were able to bust multiple runs with creative plays by getting the wide receivers into open space. AJ Henning, Roman Wilson both had, you know, sweeps and got out into space and they were able to make the most of it. I believe Henning had a 72, 73 yard touchdown run and Wilson got like a 40 something yard chunk run. They have to replicate this because what you have to do is what we saw last week is this Huskies offense isn't going to be one to go out there and score 30, 40 points. You have to put pressure on Dylan Morris and that offense to keep up. If, if the Wolverines can turn this thing into a shootout, they win the game. That's it. I don't have any faith that the Huskies are going to be able to have a high-scoring game against a very talented Michigan defense. 
But in big games, the Wolverines have lacked explosive plays at times. You look at last year against Wisconsin. You look at multiple Ohio State games over the past few years. You have to have explosive plays. When you look at their big win last year over Minnesota in week one, it was explosive play after explosive play. And then it kind of fell fell off later in the season, and that's where they've ran into trouble. This Michigan offense needs to put pressure on Washington to have to go and score. And by doing that, You've got to get your playmakers out in space and allow them to create those explosive plays as we saw last weekend. Now, the other reason I picked the run game is because Cade McNamara has to be able to ease into the game like last weekend, build off the play action. And also it keeps this very, very talented Husky secondary on, you know, honest and it keeps them off balance and it keeps them getting worn down for me this is going to be a much bigger challenge for McNamara this weekend than it was last week against Western Michigan you know he looked excellent last weekend he was efficient confident in his play and that's going to have to continue into the weekend it may have been one of the better QB performances I've seen under Harbaugh in a long time nine for 11 136 two tubs And the biggest stat for me is no turnovers. That has to be the case. If you turn the ball over and give Washington time and time again, let that defense get some momentum building, it's going to be a long day for the Wolverines. Now, yes, Ronnie Bell is sadly out for the season, according to all the latest reports I could find. But I think there's a clear replacement. Let me lay it out for you all. We saw him last weekend. And, you know, we cover every level of college here on the Blue Blood. So this is a guy I'm very familiar with. Dalen Baldwin, transfer from Jackson State, steps in, and we saw him step in late in the second half, and he showed what he was capable of with a 69-yard touchdown reception late in the second half. Now, when you look back at his Jackson State career, he led the SWAC, the entire conference of the SWAC this past spring, with 27 catches, 540 yards, and seven touchdowns. He was the explosive option for that Jackson State offense under Deion Sanders, and he he really kept that team afloat in a lot of big games, and he had some huge games behind him you know, for the Tigers. And for me, he was probably the most explosive playmaker in the SWAC last year. Now, the biggest thing with Baldwin and why I like him to start this week is because he comes with over 28 games of starting experience over his career. He's been in big games. He's been in big moments, and I think he's ready to go make his impact on this Wolverines offense, and he gives that immediate deep threat, that immediate big body on the outside that K. McNamara and this Michigan offense are missing with Bell. So for me, Dalen Baldwin is that guy to fill in that role for Bell. Now, you can't forget about Cornelius Johnson, A.J. Henning, or any of those guys. They're going to have to take larger roles as well, but Cade McNamara has a plethora of wide receiver targets on the outside, and as big of a loss as Bell is, I think they have the talent to replace him, and they have the production to step into into like a bigger role now that Bell is going to be on the sidelines this weekend. Now, moving to the Huskies in Washington, for me, it's simple. If you watched the game last week, the key the key is simple. Do not turn the ball over. If you turn the ball over, Michigan's running away with this one. They're not going to be like Montana and stall out drives. If you keep giving them the ball and letting this offense and this crowd get fired up, they're going to put 40 on you. They're going to hang 40 on you, and you're going to go back to Washington 0-2, and you're going to be wondering, well, how are we going to compete for anything this year? 
And it was really Dylan Morris had one of one of his worst games of his career last last week with three interceptions. One, it it consistently killed the rhythm of the offense, and then two, you could tell the defense kind of worn wore down down the stretch, and it allowed Montana to put some points on the board, and what ultimately was the difference in the game, and. When you look at how costly his interceptions were, so his first one came at, at, at right before halftime. They were at almost a 50. They had a third and manageable, and he throws a pick. And so what it did is cost the Huskies points right before halftime, kept it a one-score game, and it gave Montana all the momentum going into halftime. The second interception, Montana turned that into the game, the, the, the touchdown to put him ahead. It ended up being the game-winning touchdown. And the third interception – was in one of their last drives, and it cost Washington any chance of coming back, and Montana got the ball and ultimately pulled off the upset. So for me, you have to show you can make the throws in the biggest moments. I know Dylan Morris is a better quarterback than what he showed last week, but the question for me is how does he respond to the pressure? He did not have – he played very consistently in 2020. I don't think he had a performance this bad. So how is he going to respond to the criticism and the pressure of having to step his game up to the next level? And don't forget, five-star freshman Sam Heward is right behind him. He's a legacy. The fan base wants him. The media loves him. If things don't turn around soon, I expect the whispers and the chatter to begin, and that pressure is going to reach a bowling point, and, th- and this is going to become an unwinnable situation for Dylan Morris. So it starts this weekend. I think he's a much better quarterback than what he showed, and I'm expecting him to play much better this weekend. And on the flip side with the turnovers, the big house is going to be packed. The fans are going to be ready for this primetime matchup. So if you turn the ball over, that momentum might, you know, you were at home last week, but in the big house, that momentum might be too much to overcome. And Michigan, like I said, is too good. They're not Montana, and they're going to turn those turnovers into points. And they have athletes, look at like a Dak, like a Daxton Hill, they can turn those turnovers into points without even giving the ball to their offense. So you cannot turn the ball over if you're Dylan Morrison in Washington. That is the number one key. You have a strong running game. You've got some talent on the outside. Giles Jackson is back as a revenge game as he transferred to Washington from Michigan. He's back. The offense is talented enough to put points on the board, but if you turn the ball over, you're going to put your defense in a terrible situation. They're going to wear down with this physical running game Michigan is going to bring, and it's just a recipe for disaster for the Huskies. Now for my matchup to watch. It, for me, it has to be – the Michigan wide receiving group without Ronnie Bell, with all you know, all these guys who have so much potential but just haven't got a chance to show it yet against a very, very talented Washington secondary, which I think is one of the strongest in the country. And when you have Jimmy Lake, even though he's the head coach, as one of the best defensive back minds in college football, this is going to be a matchup that could go a long way in determining who pulls this game out in the big house Saturday night. And now – We've highlighted who might have to step up for Michigan. But these guys have three keys for me in this in this matchup that they have to do to aid McNamara and the Wolverines, this this entire offense, to have to get this huge conference win. One, 
you have to find a way to get separation early. That builds up confidence for McNamara. It puts you out in open space. Just you don't have to make the explosive plays early. Just get separation. Get this. Get the coaches in this offense rolling. And once you start building up that momentum, then you can go deep. But when you early in the game, you have to find a way to get separation. You have to set the tone early in that. You, you know, everyone's going to be looking, man. Who's going to be that guy that after after Ronnie Bell went down? Find separation, get some confidence in your passing game, and that way you can keep the defense honest and you can build on that. Two, avoid drops. If you go out there and, and you know, Dalen Baldwin or someone stepping in for Bell gets some early drops, the confidence is going to plummet, and that's going to really set back this Michigan's offense rhythm. You have to avoid drops make catches, get the rhythm going, and get this offense going in the right direction. That is the, that's one of the biggest things for me is avoid early drops because it could be a confidence killer and a rhythm just demolisher for an offense. And three, find a way to create explosive plays down the stretch. Last week, Michigan was so explosive. We saw a 70-yard touchdown run, a 69-yard touchdown catch from Baldwin. They were so explosive in finding ways to be creative and finding ways to make plays down the field. You have to continue that this weekend. Who's going to step up? And so for me, those are the three keys for the Michigan wide receivers to win this matchup. Get separation early, avoid drops, and create explosive plays down the stretch. If you don't create explosive plays, it's really going to hinder what this offense could do against a pretty talented Washington defense. Now, on the defensive side of the ball, the Huskies are headlined by Trent McDuffie and Brendan Radley Howes, or Buki Howes, if, if you want to call them that. Both of which, in for my in my opinion, are legitimate NFL prospects. McDuffie's probably one of the best defensive backs coming into the country. Could probably follow Elijah Molding into an early round pick, you know, somewhere in that second to third round range, maybe even higher if he has a breakout year. But Kyler Gordon, Julius Irvin, and those boys have to be the significant pieces across the board. I mean, we, we trust Howells, we trust McDuffie, but what can Gordon and Irvin do to really extend the secondary to four or five deep? And now these guys have to come to come together, force throws into tight windows, and also you have to try to force a turnover or two because right now I'm really thinking this Michigan defense is too good for Washington to play turnover-free football. You have to try to force one to two turnovers because you have to try to disorient this Michigan offense and get them off their rhythm. Once they establish to run and get to their rhythm, this hardball offense is so hard to stop. So for me, Forcing a few turnovers, forcing some quick three and outs early are the key for this defense. They gotta, they gotta show that. Listen, man, we have all the accolades to be a dominant, dominant secondary. These wide receivers are mostly unproven. Outside of Ronnie Bell, who's sitting out, we have to take advantage of this and make it our strength. We got to shut down the pass game, then we can stack the bots, and then where are you going to go if you're Michigan? So for me. Whoever wins this matchup is going to be in the driver's seat to win this game, and I'm so excited to see this matchup of Chris uh, of Jimmy Lake secondary against this core of wide receivers for the Wolverines. I think that is going to be a matchup I'm going to be watching very closely Saturday night as this game kicks off um, on ABC. So for me, man, the official prediction, you know, if you would have asked me like a week ago, I would have said Washington is going to run away with this one. But I saw too many worrisome things last week. The defense played fine last week, but this 
Michigan offense is much more explosive than that Montana one was. For me, I think Michigan's O-line is going to be able to create some holes. I think they're going to lean on the run game. And for me, I think Dylan Morris makes one or two more mistakes than Cade McNamara does, and I think that's the difference in the game. The home field advantage also plays a huge part. The big house is one of the most intimidating places in the country to play. I think this close. I honestly don't think the seven-point spread hits. For me, I have Michigan winning by a field goal or a late score. Right now, though, I have Michigan 20, Washington 17, so a three-point win for the Wolverines. I think this is a defensive game. I think it's going to come down to who can make that play down the stretch, and I trust Michigan's run game more than I trust Washington's, and I just don't know if Dylan Morris can get over the turnover bug with all the pressure and all the eyes on him. So for me, slight edge to Michigan, 20-17. to So guys, got one of the biggest games of the week, a top 10 matchup out of all places in Ames, Iowa, going down this weekend. College game day will be there to kick off everything this weekend. And, you know, this is a big game. I mean, Iowa, Iowa State, Battle of Iowa. And this is the first time either of these teams have been ranked in this matchup as they faced. Iowa's only faced this Iowa State team once while they've been ranked, and it was a loss, I believe, back in the 70s. Right now, going into the game, as you see, Iowa State is a four-and-a-half-point favorite as we're recording. I'm sure that might change as we get closer to game days. The, the lines always change. But it kicks off at 3.30 p.m. Central Time on ABC. This is the game this weekend. No other matchup features two top 10 teams facing off against each other. And when you look at the storylines coming in, Iowa is coming off a dominant uh, dominant win. I mean, a blowout win over number 17, Indiana. The Hawkeyes made one of the biggest statements in week one, 34-6 to six win over the Hoosiers. And many people are thinking that the Hawkeyes could be the biggest challenger for Ohio State this year in the Big Ten. So Kurt Ferentz has this team rolling. People are very, very high on this team, and they think this could be one of the best teams of the country. I had them in my top ten this week. I thought they deserved it. They put on a show in week one. And Iowa State, man, it, it, this team, you know, was was one of my sleeper picks this year. I was so high on this team even last year, but they, there were some concerns coming out of Week One, and some fans and experts have jumped off the bandwagon after the Cyclones only had a six-point win over Northern Iowa, which is an FCS opponent, and it really didn't impress anyone. And there was there's some who I've heard wonder if last year was a fluke for Matt Campbell and the Cyclones. Now, there's a lot of talent on this team, a lot of returning starters, and if you remember last year, they started very slow in week one with a big loss to Louisiana Lafayette, 31-14. to So you can never count out the Cyclones as it could just be the week one jitters, and that team just wasn't really ready to play. So let's get into the keys of the game. The keys for Iowa are simple, and I just want to say these teams are so – evenly matched and they rival each other very well they both got strong offensive lines both have outstanding running backs both have quarterbacks with with some questions but can be can lead the team if necessary and both of them have very strong defenses so the game plans are going to be pretty similar but for me the game plan here is give the ball to Tyler Goodson 
and then give the ball to Tyler Goodson some more. And then right when they're not expecting it, give the ball to Goodson again. That is the strategy for Iowa. It was what they did last week at Tom's, and Goodson has to be the focal point of this offense. He rushed for over 100 yards and a touchdown last week, and while average, he's averaging over almost 110 yards per game throughout the seven-game win streak, which stretched back to the end of last season. When he's efficient, when he's physical and explosive, and he can be that every down back, Iowa is tough to beat week in and week out. And with such an experienced Cyclones defense, if you can get that running game going, control the top of possession, and wear down this defense, you are going to have a much better chance of winning than you would otherwise. And with with these with this matchup, it's always kind of a grinded out slugfest type of game, low scoring. Who can impose their will? Goodson is the key for that for Iowa. Also want to mention, look out for Ivory Kelly Martin as well, who played well in some limited action, had almost 50 yards on eight carries, was able to move the ball pretty efficiently. But in this game, he's going to have to be a huge factor when Goodson goes to the bench or needs a break. He's got to be able to also establish the running game if Goodson needs a break or Goodson you know, can't be on there for a certain package or something like that. The Hawkeyes need to have an explosive one-two punch with Martin and Goodwin. And that's really the key. And the reason I picked this as my key is because, yes, Spencer Petrus has been proving everyone wrong. But for me, I I got a little bit of a concern about him carrying the offense and dragging it to a win over this Iowa State defense. But when you established run like you did last week, you saw he didn't have to play spectacular. But what he did is he played within the offense and he didn't have to force anything, which limited turnovers in which Indiana could not say the same thing as they turned the ball over all the time last week. For me, the big that's going to be the biggest thing in this matchup is establishing the run so Petrus can play within himself. Yes, he's not going to be that game-changer quarterback that can carry a team. But the question for Petrus is, can he make the five, six, maybe even eight passes a game in key moments to make the difference between a three-point loss and a three-point win or a seven-point win, a seven-point loss? Can he make however many key throws in the game in key moments? Can he make those and avoid the turnover? The offensive line was solid last week, I would say, but the test is much harder this weekend. You know, the Hoosiers had a lot of questions on that defensive front. The Cyclones returned a turned ten of eleven starters on the defensive side of the ball. So this new line coach, George Barnett, is going to really his unit is going to determine the outcome in this game for the Hawkeyes. Nick DeJong, Mason Richmond are going to be the starting tackles again, but Kyler Scott is supposed his availability is in question on the inside of that offensive line. So what is the interior going to look like? Who is going to have to step up if, if Scott can't go at that interior offensive lineman position? So that, that that's the key for Iowa is give it to Goodson. And, you know, I mentioned that they're very similar teams. The, the, the strength, the, the strengths and weaknesses are very, very similar. I mean, if you look at them on paper, they look like replica teams. So the strategy should be the exact same for Iowa state. Give the ball to Brees Hall and let him do what he does. That's it. Just give the ball to Brees Hall. That was the formula all last season. So why would you change it? And I understand last week he, 
I guess he got off to a kind of a slow start. He was held to three yards per carry by this Northern Iowa defense. That cannot happen. He's got to jump up to the five to six yards per carry that we saw most of last season. I believe he averaged 5.6. He led the FBS in rushing last year and was really the key to the Cyclones making their run. In games where he struggled, the Cyclones struggled. In games where he was dominant, they ran away with it. So he is the key to this offense and, and will be until he graduates. He has to find his magic. Last season, over 1,500 yards and 21 touchdowns. He's got to be that Brees Hall rather than the guy who struggled to run against a Northern Iowa defense, which is not going to be near what I was bringing into town this weekend. In the same way that I talked about Petrus at Iowa, Brock Purdy has to have the run game open up to establish the passing attack. They have to set up the play action. They have to get the defense to commit into the box and give Purdy and those guys on the outside like Xavier Hutchison some favorable matchups. I don't think they can just be a pass-heavy team without establishing the run. That is a recipe for disaster for both teams. And when you look at how Iowa beat Indiana last week, they shut down the run and they put Michael Penix in uncomfortable situations where they could come after him with the pass rush and they they, they sat back in coverage and said, you're not going to run the ball. We're going to drop eight in coverage. We're going to drop seven in coverage and we're better than you on the outside. And that's what they did. And Penix had no answer for it. He was uncomfortable through three interceptions. And that's how Iowa got the huge win against Indiana. That is why you have to run the ball with Hall because you cannot have Purdy be forced in the same situation as Penix because it, the answer is not going to be there. Hutchison is great. But you saw what they did with Fry Fogel. You saw what they did with Penix. You cannot fall victim to the exact same thing you're watching film on all week. Brees Hall is the key here. And if this offense becomes one-dimensional, I think it's a recipe for disaster, and they cannot catch the turnover bug. Purdy has been really good over this over this past, you know, last season and this week about not limiting his turnovers. If he catches the turnover bug, I was running away with this one. You have to protect the ball if you're Brock Purdy, if you get put into passing situations. And the question with him is the same as Petrus, which is can he make the two, three, four, five throws a game that you need to keep a drive going, to get a third down touchdown, to to keep a drive up? You have to be able to make those to win the game. And so which quarterback can make those throws is another big question going into this game. And, you know, the main matchup to watch, other than the quarterback matchup I just kind of highlighted, is Iowa State's O-line versus Iowa's D-line. And I picked this one because it's one of the most experienced offensive lines in the country against a young D-line at Iowa, which I'm going to say excelled in its first appearance against Indiana, but this task is going to be much tougher. When you look at the Cyclones, they have a returning starter at every offensive line position, and their top three backups have multiple starts to their name. They got an eight-deep rotation just in case of injury or someone not playing well. The Cyclones offensive line was one of the strongest units last season, and they paved the way for Brees Hall's huge breakout season. They're going to need to bring their A game this weekend, and if they can control the line of scrimmage, Iowa State has a great chance of pulling this game out in Ames. 
Now, for the Hawkeyes D-line, they lost some huge contributors, including Davian Nixon, who was the Big Ten D-lineman of the year, Chauncey Golson, who was a multi-time All-American, and they got three new starters on that defensive line for the Hawkeyes, and they're mostly unproven. There's a lot of potential and talent, as we saw last week. Zach Zach Van Valkenburg, I think it's Yaya Black and Noah Shannon are going to be the top names to watch on this D-line going into the weekend. They're going to hold the D-line together. One, they have to make sure they pressure Brock Purdy. And two, they also have to be stout in run defense and, you know, make sure they're helping their linebackers out by creating a stout front seven. Because if Brees Hall runs for, you know, 100 to 150 yards, I got a tough time seeing Iowa pull this out. You got to shut Brees Hall down if you can and force Brock Purdy to beat you. And that's not as easier said than done, but it's a key for Iowa here. This matchup becomes interesting because you take into account the team who probably wins the time of possession and is able to wear down the other's defense is going to have a significant advantage. It's going to go a long way in determining who wins this game. So who can control the line of scrimmage, the time of possession, and the biggest thing in a in a I guess a grind a grinder type game like this and a you know a back and forth you know low scoring affair, which I think it's going to be. It's who can establish their will on the other team the most, you know, the best. And so for me, it's which team can, you know, run the ball, establish their pace, establish their game plan. And that's the team that's going to win. So I'm really, really interested in this one. I think it's going to be low scoring. I think it's going to be a back and forth battle, a slugfest. And so for my official prediction, man, I have, I don't care who was the favorite. I don't think four and a half points is ever going to, you know, I don't think anyone's ever going to cover that regardless of who was the favorite. For me, I think this is a one possession game. Someone is going to get uh, one play here, one play there that really makes a difference. I, you know, when I look at this matchup, I really just have a feeling Iowa State is going to find a way to do it at home. I'm going to be honest with y'all. If this was in Kinnick, I would pick Iowa every day, twice twice on Saturday, just because of that environment and the, and the emotion that comes with playing in that stadium. And we've seen them do it time and time again like we did last week. But Ames is going to be absolutely packed. That energy is going to be raucous. They know what they have to do. And we saw last year they can overcome a slow week one start. They pull out the win instead of falling to the upset like last year. I think Iowa State gets a close win, guys. I have Iowa State 21, Iowa 20. I think it's going to come down to like a point here, a play here or there. But I got Iowa State 21, Iowa 20. So, guys, if you're in the biggest games of the weekend, which we have the number 11 Oregon Ducks traveling to Columbus to to go into the horseshoe, man, take on the number three-ranked Ohio State Buckeyes, and I am so pumped for this matchup. I think it's going to be an absolutely outstanding game. And right now, as you'll see at the bottom, Ohio State is a 14-and-a-half-point favorite as we're recording. I'm sure that line will move, especially as the Kayvon Thibodeau news becomes official. But this game kicks off at 11 a.m., a central time on Fox, 12 p.m. Eastern time. And if you're way out there on the West Coast, I'm sorry, you better get up early. But for me, I think this is this is my pick for the biggest matchup of the weekend. And I think it could shake up the Big Ten and the Pac-12 championship races and probably really and truly 
determined the Pac-12 shot at a college football playoff berth, especially with with Clemson losing last week. Now, some of the storylines going into the week are Ohio State came out of week one with a huge conference road win over Minnesota. They had an explosive second half and really made a statement with their athletes on both sides of the ball, especially a wide receiver. In the second half, no one could see Chris Olave in open space. Mayan Williams made play after play on the ground, and that offensive line kept C.J. Stroud completely clean with no sacks given up. So Ohio State's rolling. They jump up to the number three team in the country, and they and they are right in the driver's seat to win the Big Ten right now and also get a shot at the college football playoff. Now, Oregon, on the other hand, came out of week one with a win over Fresno State, but, the, but how close this game was down the stretch, and then also Kayvon Thibodeau in a walking boot raised some major concerns for the Ducks going into week two. Now, right now, as I'm recording, Kayvon Thibodeau was still the number one starter at that joker position for the Oregon Ducks. So all reports indicate that he is most likely at least going to suit up and try to play. We are going to find out more later today on Wednesday as this is released about, you know, his availability for the game. And also kind of as we get closer to game time, I'm assuming it's going to be a game time decision, but Knowing him, knowing this team, they're probably going to suit him up because this is the, one of the biggest games of the year. And if they can get this upset, it sets Oregon up to really make a strong run at the college ball playoff and be one of the biggest wins of the year. Now, what are the keys for Ohio State? For me, it's simple because it's the exact same game plan last week, and it's clear what was working for Ohio State last week. And it starts with establishing the run early, and allowing that to open up your play-action passing game and letting your athletes get in space. Now, for me, Mayan Williams was explosive last week, had a, over 120 yards rushing, a huge touchdown. And the Ohio State O-line, like I said, did an amazing job in terms of blocking in both aspects of blocking and pass and run. Zero sacks, only one tackle for loss. That has to continue. But then also... My X factor, I want to see Travion Henderson get a few more touches at the running back spot. I know Master T is still there, but when I watch Travion Henderson, he's just so explosive, and I think he he could really be a game-breaker this weekend for the Buckeyes, and I would love to see what he can do. Last week, he only got two carries, and he took his only catch, which was on a screen pass, 70 yards to the house. I would love to see Henderson get eight to 12 touches, whether it be runs, whether it be screens, whether it's, you know, get them out in space, line them up on the outside, get on the ball and let, let, let them, you know, make some people miss. But for me, Ohio State has to be explosive this week, this weekend. You could tell that this offense is functioning at its highest level when they're getting big chunk plays and they're taking the top off. And what you want to do is get this crowd into it as early as possible. It's an early kickoff. Get this crowd pumped up early. Make some explosive plays. Get Chris Olave into open space. Get Garrett Wilson into open space. And so for me, I, I honestly, I honestly think that that's the key for Ohio State. But also, once the Ducks commit to the run, the playmakers should have one-on-one on the outside. And I don't know if anyone can hang with Chris Olave one-on-one. But I think this secondary is going to be a much tougher test for Ohio State because I think this DB room for Oregon is a lot is a lot more talented than the Minnesota secondary they faced last week. Olave and Garrett Wilson 
are going to do their thing. But I really think some of the other guys in that room are going to have to step up this weekend because I would imagine if I'm Oregon and I know I have the athletes on the outside, Michael Williams is probably the only guy that can run step for step with Chris Olave. Those guys are both 4-3 or lower type guys. So I, I would imagine Wright has Olave this weekend, but I would I would I would say Oregon's going to scheme for Olave and try to and try to make make you beat them somewhere else, and that's a great plan. So one of those highly rated athletic guys like a Julian Fleming or someone like that has to step up and go out there and make some big plays. And so for me, that's going to be the question mark: is who's going to step up beside Olave and Garrett Wilson? Because outside of those two guys last week, no one really had to step up because those guys were going out there and making all the plays. Now, for Oregon, though, the key for me is absolutely clear, especially if you watched any bit of like the first three and a half quarters of this Minnesota game last week. Run the damn ball. Just establish the run. That's easily the number one thing for Oregon. Minnesota at times was able to control the line of scrimmage, and Mo Ibrahim was able to almost single-handedly carry the Gophers into their halftime lead in a competitive third quarter before he went down. Sadly, he, he ruptured his Achilles, so he'll be out for the season. Uh, wish him the best. But for me, Oregon has all the tools to replicate this strategy. I think they might even have a chance to be more explosive because they have kind of a two-back system where both of the guys can carry this offense. And also their O-line is right on par with Minnesota's, and they have a very upperclassman heavy offensive line, even after losing Panay Suell. And, you know, Mario Cristobal has recruited outstanding on the offensive line. I mean, they already got Kelvin brought up, uh, no, I believe it's it's Kelvin Banks is the five-star they have in the next class. So he's been recruiting, you know, all these offensive linemen that come from like distinguished pedigrees. But for me, C.J. Verdell and Travis Dye are the two guys you're going to have to watch this weekend. They have to be an effective, dynamic, and explosive one-two punch for, for Oregon to even have a shot in this game. They're going to have to wear down this front seven for Ohio State, and they're going to have to – run the clock and control the clock and control the ball to keep all those explosive playmakers on the sideline. Because what you want is you want to run the clock down. Ohio State's defense starting to wear down and you and you start being able to establish a run more and more and more. And then you could open up the play action game with Anthony Brown and that talented wide receiving core. And also it it, it kind of will keep the pass rush off of you too for Anthony Brown. But then also it keeps your defense fresh because once they wear down, which is what we saw in the second half against Minnesota, once that Ohio State team started to kind of control things and Minnesota couldn't run the ball, that secondary just couldn't hang because Ohio State's too deep and too athletic. You don't want that to happen. C.J. Verdell and Travis Dye are going to have to run the ball consistently. The offensive line is going to have to move, control the line of scrimmage, move some of these talented, talented defensive linemen from Ohio State out the way. And also, Anthony Brown has to make some plays with his legs. He did last week, which ultimately won, won them the game. He's going to have to keep the defense honest. He's going to have to try to you know take one of these talented defenders and make them a spa. If Anthony Brown doesn't force anything, doesn't go you know, create a bunch of turnovers, Oregon will be fine. And especially when he doesn't have anything, he's able to go get some first downs with his legs, you know, keep them in third and manageable. That's what you want with Ohio State. That's how Minnesota was successful. Third and twos, third and ones, third and threes. That's where you want to live against a very talented defense like Ohio State. If you catch yourself in third and 12, 
third and 14 and that and that defense can pin their ears back and come after you, that's a recipe for disaster with this talented Ohio State defense. So the running game is huge. Now, the Ducks offensive line is stout. I mean, four upperclassmen, TJ Bass, Alex Forsyth, um, Ryan Walk, and George Moore are all the upperclassmen. But the right tackle position is a question mark. In the official depth chart today, it was an or. We don't know if Stephen Jones is going to play or a, I, I believe it's a Wave Lalu. And um, we don't know which one of those guys are going to start at the right tackle spot. But whoever starts is going to have to go make some plays because you're going to have either Zach Harrison, you're going to have to have Tyreek coming off the edge. I mean, you're going to have to go up against the best of the best of what this Ohio State defense has to offer. So either one of those guys have to be ready to go. And so that's the keys for the two teams. Now, the matchup to watch for me, I am so pumped for. This is why I've been looking forward to this matchup for the longest time. But I get if you want to make an argument for the DBs because of Bennett Williams and Michael Wright and all those guys on the back end of that Oregon defense against Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson is going to be amazing. And I am excited about that. But that's kind of obvious to me. For me, it's 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 a matchup where Oregon should have the slight advantage if fully healthy, and that's the – Oregon defensive line versus the Ohio State offensive line. It's strength versus strength right now. Kayvon Thibodeau listed as the starter right now, so it looks like he might play. And it won't be announced till later. But then if he does play, this could be a game changer for Oregon because he is an immediate threat off the edge, and you can't leave him one-on-one on the outside. You're going to have to chip him with a running back, bring a tight end in, Double like if you leave him on an island with a tackle, he is probably getting to the quarterback nine times out of ten. Outside of Thibodeau, though, Keon Ware-Hudson, um, uh, I believe it's Popo Amuve, Brandon Dorius, all those guys have to be impactful, too, because if you if, if no one else is a, is a threat outside of Kayvon Thibodeau, they can scheme for that. But if everyone's going out there on their islands that Kayvon Thibodeau creates with his double teams and chips, you got to go make a play when you get one-on-one matchups, and that's going to be the key for this Oregon defensive line. They had four sacks last week by, by four different players, but it's not all about sacks for me. The reason I picked this matchup, and it's something Minnesota wasn't able to do, especially in the second half, and that's why they ended up losing this game, is they have to get that internal clock for C.J. Stroud ticking. It, even if you don't get the sack, being a step away, getting your hands on him, knocking him to the ground, getting in his face, making him feel you and sense, sense you around him, and making him feel like the pocket isn't as secure as it usually is, is going to get him – rolling out quicker. He'll, he's going to be overthrowing passes. He's going to be sailing passes. He might even throw a, get a few turnovers. What you want to do is make him feel so uncomfortable. It's only his second game as a starter. That's the key. If you if you make C.J. Stroud uncomfortable, it takes away all the weapons on the outside because they rely on C.J. Stroud to get them the ball. If you can disrupt him, you could disrupt this Ohio State offense. So that's going to be the key for Oregon is getting to C.J. Stroud, not just sacks, but make him feel you all game and make that internal clock in his head from the first quarter on tick a little bit faster than it did last week against Minnesota. And that is why this matchup is so important. Now, easier said than done. I've already mentioned on this show, Ohio State's offensive line is legit. They probably got three, four real NFL prospects on, on that offensive line. They had zero sacks last week. Nobody, but nobody on Minnesota's team was even, uh, I guess, an above average pass rusher coming into the game or not even an established pass rusher. 
But the O-line is absolutely loaded with talent. Both of these units are legit. You look at Mumford, you you look at Pierre Freed uh, as the tackles. Those guys are legit. So it's going to be NFL matchups across the board when these when this offensive line for Oregon and this off this defensive line for Oregon, this offensive line for Ohio State matchup. So that's the matchup I'm watching. Whoever wins that matchup is going to go a long way in determining who wins this game. And so it's time now, this point spread, like I said, 14 and a half for Ohio State. I, I, you know, I'm not putting, I don't like week one overreactions, and a lot of people do that. I don't put as much stock into that Fresno State close game as some people do for Oregon. Oregon was dominating that game. It's like 21 to six. They're about to go up again. And you could kind of tell they took their foot off the gas and then Kayvon Thibodeau gets hurt. And they had a lot of energy drained from that team. And Fresno State has been playing outstanding football this year anyway. That team was one of the Mountain West contenders last year. So for me, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to say Oregon's better than what they showed last week. And I don't, I think this game will be close, but for me, have questions about Anthony Brown's ability to carry this offense if Ohio State can shut down the run and also Kayvon Thibodeau's, Kayvon Thibodeau's health, even if he's 75% is a question for me. So right now, I, I, I don't think the spread hits right now. I do have Ohio State pulling away late from Oregon 38-28 in, in the horseshoe, man. I, I love this matchup. I think it would have been a closer game if both teams were full, you know, Oregon was fully healthy. And also maybe if Anthony Brown was replaced with the backup. I know I'm, I'm a huge Ty Thompson guy, but for me, Ohio State's too athletic on the outside. I think they're going to be able to bust an explosive player too late to pull away. I don't know if that pass rush is going to be the same without Thibodeau taking all that attention. So for me, a 10 point win for Ohio State at 11 a.m. on Saturday. 38-28 over the Ducks for the Buckeyes. But, guys, right now for the Blue Bloods, we are out. <laughs>